Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Destination Disaster. I am your host, Devin Carney. Haiti is one of the world's oldest republics in the Western Hemisphere. However, as many nations industrialized and developed, Haiti has been unable to find firm footing in the modern world. With a lack of sufficient food sources and access to clean drinking water, much of the country has succumbed to violence at the hands of roaming gangs who take what they want and leave little in their path. This week, we are discussing the 2010 Haiti earthquake and subsequent cholera outbreak that would sweep through the country just mere months following the crippling earthquake and only exacerbate the conditions that existed before. To begin, Haiti is home to extremely rugged terrain, with mountains spanning its border with the Dominican Republic and spanning throughout the rest of the country. Due to the mountainous terrain of Haiti, population centers are densely packed and small little coastal plains and valleys. Haiti averages about 325 people per square kilometer. Its population is concentrated most heavily in urban areas, coastal plains, and valleys. About 95% of Haitians are of African descent. The rest of the population is mostly of mixed Caucasian-African ancestry. French is one of two official languages, but it is spoken fluently by only about 10% of the people. All Haitians speak Creole, the country's other official language. English and Spanish are increasingly used as second languages among the young and in the business sector. In the last 50 years, the population of Haiti has tripled. The current population of the nation stands at about 11.7 million and is expected to continue its growth until sometime near 2070 when it is expected to begin declining. Haiti's largest cities dot the coastline with the largest being, of course, Port-au-Prince with a population of just over 1.2 million, Carrefour with 442,000, Delmas 73 with 382,000, and Pettenville with 283,000. The island itself is situated on the island of Hispaniola in the Greater Antilles Archipelago. The Windward Passage separates Haiti from Cuba, which lies about 80 kilometers to the northwest. Haiti has an area of 27,750 square kilometers, or 10,714 square miles, slightly smaller than the state of Maryland. Because of its horseshoe shape, Haiti has a disproportionately long coastline. In all, Haiti's coastline stretches 1,771 kilometers or 1,100 miles, with prominent peninsulas in both the north and the south. The reason Haiti experiences the sheer number of quakes that it gets is due to this exact location. Situated on both the North American plate and the Caribbean plate, this makes earthquakes that affect Haiti catastrophic. In addition to two major plate systems that Haiti is situated along, the island nation also is on two major fault lines. This is known as the Enriqueo Plantain Garden Fault System. One of the driving factors as to why Haiti is unable to build robust infrastructure to prevent 
and mitigate the causes of these major earthquakes is due to Haiti being the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere with 80% of the population under the poverty line and 54% in abject poverty. Two-thirds of all Haitians depend on the agricultural sector, relying mainly on small-scale subsistence farming. However, these remain vulnerable to damage from frequent natural disasters and are exacerbated by the country's widespread deforestation. While the economy has recovered in recent years, registering positive growth since 2005, four tropical storms in 2008 severely damaged the transportation infrastructure and agricultural sector. When countries are unable to build the infrastructure that is vital for a grown nation, it unfortunately leads to continued struggles and slower recovery from any form of disaster. It is ultimately up to the developed nations to aid in the development of these nations. Why sit back and watch those continue to struggle? Why continue to wait until catastrophic disasters kill hundreds of thousands and leave even more homeless and without vital necessities such as clean drinking water? As we go through this episode, I want you to keep this question in the forefront of your mind. Haiti is prone to catastrophic quakes due to its location along the two major tectonic plates and fault systems discussed a minute ago. In 1751, the city of Port-au-Prince was actually destroyed following a massive earthquake. Witness accounts of the event from the National Centers for Environmental Information recount the devastation. Houses and factories were thrown down at St. Mark and Plain du Cul-de-Sac. Crevices formed and abundant springs of nauseous water broke forth. Researchers who witnessed the event described it. Great landslips occurred and the beds of the rivers changed direction. This is the story for every major quake to shake this island nation. In 1860, another quake occurred further west than the one to strike in 2010, leading to a tsunami. This would be the final quake for over 200 years that would strike Haiti. This seems to be a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario for the entire country. Haitians have been building to prevent excess damage from hurricanes as it lies right in the barrel of the gun during hurricane season. This means instead of wooden structures, concrete and masonry are now being used. However, earthquakes and masonry don't mix all too well and can lead to crush injuries and deaths if structures are not built correctly. The United States Geological Survey actually predicts that due to the 200-year gap in earthquakes, that this may be the start of a new, more active time for the fault zone over which Haiti is situated. It seems as though the Geological Survey was correct in their prediction. Since 2010, six earthquakes ranging in magnitude 3.5 to 7.2 have struck different cities throughout the island nation. Record keeping in these smaller cities are not as accurate, therefore I won't be sharing the fatalities or injuries associated with these events. Before we move into the main portion of this episode, we're going to take a quick break here. We'll be right back after these messages. Now, as we move into the main portion of the episode, I want to warn those who may be claustrophobic or those who may be particularly squeamish that we are going to be discussing death caused by crush injuries and the subsequent cholera outbreak that would ultimately sweep through the country as well, leaving hundreds of thousands more dead. The 2010 earthquake struck just before 5 p.m. The tremor was felt as far away as Cuba and Venezuela, but the epicenter of the 7.0 magnitude quake was just 16 miles away from Port-au-Prince. Eight aftershocks followed the same day, and at least 52 were recorded over the next two weeks. As the quake rocked Haiti, buildings began collapsing as the masonry and brick structures collapsed due to the shaking. Those unable to escape became trapped under tons of rubble. Estimates provided by the Haitian government tell a jarring story of just how vulnerable the country is to natural hazards. 250,000 residences and 30,000 commercial structures are believed to have been destroyed. In addition to the catastrophic damage within the city of Port-au-Prince, the port itself was damaged to a point where it became inoperable. 
the earthquake caused major damage in Port-au-Prince, Jacmel, and other cities in the region. Notable landmark buildings were significantly damaged or destroyed, including the Presidential Palace, the National Assembly Building, the Port-au-Prince Cathedral, and the main jail. Among those killed were Archbishop of Port-au-Prince, Joseph Serge Mio, and opposition leader, Micah Galliard. The headquarters of the United Nations Stabilization Mission in Haiti, Minista, located in the capital, collapsed, killing many, including the mission's chief, Hedy Anabi. Estimates of fatalities are still very vague, and I estimate that this will remain true, as it has been 12 years since the earthquake, and only these estimates have been provided. The Haitian government places fatalities somewhere in the neighborhood of between 220 to 316,000, while other agencies place the death toll somewhere between 100,000 to 160,000. It was evident in the hours following the earthquake, much of the vital infrastructure such as communications, air, land, and sea transport facilities, hospitals, and electrical networks had been severely damaged. Amongst the widespread devastation and damage throughout Port-au-Prince and elsewhere, vital infrastructure necessary to respond to the disaster was severely damaged or destroyed. This included all hospitals in the capital, air, sea, and land transport facilities, and communication systems. The quake affected three of the Doctors Without Borders medical facilities around Port-au-Prince, causing one to collapse completely. A hospital in Pettenville, a wealthy suburb of Port-au-Prince, also collapsed, as did the St. Michael District Hospital in the southern town of Jacmel, which was the largest peripheral hospital in southeast Haiti. Without these vital implements of infrastructure, what is a nation to do during the recovery effort? This is the common trait we discuss when it comes to impoverished nations following a disaster impact. While the outpouring of global support is immense, why can those same nations not provide the knowledge and resources to help bolster the infrastructure ahead of time? As we move through the response phase of this disaster, it's easy to tell that Haiti's government did not have a strategic plan in place in the event of an earthquake. There was no coordinated response from the Haitian government to get shelters and reunification sites activated. Ultimately, it was up to the people to dig themselves out and do it all over again. Not even the roads were cleared quickly. One account from Hazim Elzeen, who was the head of the Southeast Division of the UN World Food Program, stated that it took 10 days to clear the road to Jacmel, another city hopelessly waiting for critical aid to arrive. They promised rapid response. To be honest, I don't know why it hasn't been done. I can think only that their priority must be somewhere else. In the days after the earthquake, chaos was still commonplace in the streets of Port-au-Prince and other areas affected by this immense quake. Those left homeless were forced to sleep in the streets, and due to the aftershocks, many feared being crushed under the already unstable structures. Many of those sleepings on the streets shared that space with the dead as the morgue facilities in the city became overwhelmed, forcing staff to store the bodies on the streets of the city. Almost immediately, Port-au-Prince's morgue facilities were overwhelmed. By January 14th, a thousand bodies had been placed on the streets and pavements. Government crews staffed trucks to collect thousand moors, burying them in mass graves. In the heat and humidity, corpses buried in the rubble began to decompose and smell. Matty Goldstein, head of the Israeli Zaka International Rescue Unit delegation to Haiti, described the situation as Shabbat from hell. Everywhere, the acrid smell of bodies hangs in the air. It's just like the stories we are told of the Holocaust, thousands of bodies everywhere. You have to understand that the situation is true madness, and the more time passes, there are more and more bodies in numbers that cannot be grasped. It is beyond comprehension. Relief began pouring in, initially from the Dominican Republic. 
The government here opened its hospitals for those injured, initiated a combined effort mission that involved both the airport's department and the Dominican Naval Auxiliaries, forming the Dominican-Haitian Aerial Support Bridge. The Dominican Red Cross also mobilized and coordinated early medical relief efforts in conjunction with the International Red Cross. The Dominican government sent in 39 trucks carrying canned food along with 10 mobile kitchens and 110 cooks capable of producing 100,000 meals per day. Other nations from farther afield also sent personnel, medicines, material, and other aid to Haiti. The first team to arrive in Port-au-Prince was Ice Sar from Iceland, landing within 24 hours of the earthquake. A 50-member Chinese team arrived early Thursday morning. From the Middle East, the government of Qatar sent a strategic transport aircraft loaded with 50 tons of urgent relief materials and 26 members from the Qatari Armed Forces, the Internal Security Force, Police Force, and the Hamad Medical Corporation to set up a field hospital and provide assistance in Port-au-Prince and other affected areas in Haiti. A rescue team sent by the Israeli Defense Forces Home Front Command established a field hospital near the United Nations building in Port-au-Prince with specialized facilities to treat children, the elderly, and women in labor. It was set up in eight hours and began operations on the evening of January 16th. A Korean international disaster relief team with 40 rescuers, medical doctors, nurses, and two canines was deployed to epicenters to assist mitigation efforts of Haitian government. The American Red Cross announced on January 13th that it had run out of supplies in Haiti and appealed for public donations. Giving Children Hope worked to get much-needed medicines and supplies on the ground. Partners in Health, the largest healthcare provider in rural Haiti, was able to provide some emergency care from its 10 hospitals and clinics, all of which were outside of the capital and undamaged. Minista had over 9,000 uniformed peacekeepers deployed to the area. Most of these workers were initially involved in the search for survivors at the organization's collapsed headquarters. The airport in which this combined response was located only handled around 35 flights per day. Generally, this means a smaller ramp and apron to accommodate aircraft that needed to be serviced prior to departure. At the peak of relief efforts, the airport was in a state of chaos. Normally, the airport was a single runway and 10 spaces for large planes handled 20 flights per day. After the earthquake struck, hundreds of planes rushed to Haiti without designated landing times. On average, a plane would land or take off every two minutes. Congestion began to ease as other response contingents began to arrive, including the USS Carl Vinson, an aircraft carrier carrying a massive load of relief, which included 600,000 emergency rations, 100,000 10-liter water containers within the first day of the Carl Vinson arriving, over 130,000 liters of drinking water were transferred to shore. As the response phase transitioned into the recovery phase, this is where we begin to see cracks in the Haitian government's response to the earthquake and their lack of resources. Nearly six months following the earthquake, over 90% of the rubble remained, with bodies littered throughout. Within the tent camps that had been erected following the earthquake, crime was beginning to increase, especially against women and children. It is estimated at this time that over 1.6 million lived in these tent homes. While it had been decided early on that priority would be given to rebuild Haiti's government complex, construction had not begun in the months following. In fact, not much had really been done at all. In October 2010, Refugees International characterized the aid agencies as dysfunctional and inexperienced, saying the people of Haiti are still living in a state of emergency with a humanitarian response that appears paralyzed. It was reported that gang leaders and landowners were intimidating the displaced and that sexual, domestic, and gang violence in and around the camps was rising. They claimed that rape of Haitian women and girls who had been living in camps since the January earthquake was increasing in part because the United Nations wasn't doing enough to protect them. 
In fact, in this period of violence and widespread displacement is where we witnessed the cholera epidemic that would rage through Haiti begin. After a quick break, we would dive deeper and discuss the implications that the cholera epidemic would pose with the recovery from the earthquake. Cholera is a bacterial disease that is incredibly infectious and is often fatal in those that it infects. The disease is most commonly found in areas where sanitation is lacking and is spread through infected water supplies. When cholera began spreading through Haiti, it spread like wildfire. There were many arguments around who or what caused the cholera outbreak in Haiti following the earthquake. Some speculate it was due to environmental changes spurred by the La Nina and unsanitary living conditions potentially triggering bacteria already in the water and soil. Another was a claim made by locals living near a camp housing Nepalese UN peacekeepers. Under intense pressure, the UN relented and said it would appoint a panel to investigate the source of the cholera strain. That panel's report, issued in May 2011, confirmed substantial evidence that the Nepalese troops had brought the disease to Haiti. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention utilized DNA fingerprinting to test various samples of cholera from Haitian patients to pinpoint the specific strand of cholera found in Haiti. During an epidemiological outbreak investigation, DNA fingerprinting of bacteria can be extremely helpful in identifying the source of an outbreak. The results of the CDC tests show that the specific strain of cholera found in samples taken from Haitian patients was Vibrio cholerae serogroup O1. Serotype Ogawa, a strain found in South Asia. The specific strain of cholera is endemic in Nepal, therefore supporting the Haitian suspicion that Nepalese peacekeepers were the source of the outbreak. However, in the report's concluding remarks, the author stated a confluence of circumstances was to blame. Whatever the source of the outbreak, this disease spread fast, wide, and through the camps and cities within the country. It took only 10 weeks for this epidemic to reach all corners of Haiti. On October 21, 2010, the Haitian Ministry of Public Health and Population confirmed the first case of cholera in Haiti in over a century. The outbreak began in the rural center department of Haiti, about 62 miles north of the capital, Port-au-Prince. By the first 10 weeks of the epidemic, cholera spread to all of Haiti's 10 departments or provinces. It had killed 4,672 people by March 2011 and hospitalized thousands more. The outbreak in Haiti was the most severe in recent history prior to 2010. The World Health Organization reported that from 2010 to 2011, the outbreak in Haiti accounted for 57% of all cases and 45% of all deaths from cholera worldwide. Instances of new cases would drop slowly and only show infectivity spikes following rainy seasons or hurricane impacts. In March 2013, the government in Haiti launched a vaccine campaign. The oral cholera vaccination campaign began in two regions due to the prevalence of attack rates, low sanitation infrastructure, and access to health care. Finally, with continued work to develop infrastructure in the country, develop surveillance measures, and vaccines, the last confirmed case of cholera occurred in Haiti in February 2019. As of March 2021, Haiti has reported more than 820,000 cases and nearly 10,000 deaths. Between the earthquake and cholera outbreak, this series of disasters caused well over $10 billion in damages and costs in fighting the outbreak. Unfortunately, Haiti seems unable to catch a break due mainly to the location of this country. In August 2021, another massive earthquake struck along with a direct hit from Tropical Depression Grace. Hundreds of landslides occurred in the impacted area. The most significant landslide blocked the major national highway between Jeremy and Les Cay, hampering travel for rescue and aid efforts. 
Tropical Depression Grace triggered additional landslides as destabilized soil got wet. Over 140,000 families displaced by Hurricane Matthew in 2016 still need decent shelter. Since the 2010 earthquake, nearly 33,000 people still live in displacement camps, and at least 300,000 live in an informal settlement without government oversight. Authorities have not provided assistance to return or resettle them, or to ensure their basic rights in the settlement. The country's most vulnerable communities face environmental risks, including widespread deforestation, industrial pollution, and limited access to safe water and sanitation. While I wish that I could tell you there was good news on the horizon, there isn't. One of my wishes in life is for all to live in peace and have access to critical items such as water, food, and shelter. Work has been done to improve the quality of life in Haiti. It just happens at an extremely slow rate. Thank you for listening this week. If you enjoyed the content that I provide, please be sure to leave a like on the episode and rate the podcast five stars on your streaming service of choice. Be sure to also follow me on Instagram at Destination Period Disaster and on Twitter at Dest Disaster. That is D-E-S-T-D-I-S-A-S-T-E-R. Until next week, this has been Destination Disaster. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.